All right, open up your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 11. We are starting a brand new sermon series today called Heroes of Faith. And we're going to go through Hebrews chapter 11 and look at all of these heroes of faith as Scripture portrays them. Now, as you turn there, we have not done a new segment in forever so let me just do a really, really short one. So we've had, we just had a, the GOP pass a bill um, for their new tax cut bill. And uh, it has not become a law. We're not sure yet whether it's going to become a law. But basically, the, the idea is this. They want to slash taxes. Conservatives always want to slash taxes. And generally speaking, liberals always want to raise taxes for the most part. We're, talk, we're speaking in, 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 in broad swaths here. Now, I am open that I am a very conservative-minded person politically, and it's okay to disagree with me on some issues. We're talking about what the Bible says, and in some issues, it's not clear what the Bible says. I think tax policy is pretty clearly not explicitly mentioned in Scripture, right? So you can be on either side of the debate in this, and that's totally fine. I just want to say that, you know, I, I was searching for uh, tax you know, uh, uh, an explanation online, a summary of this tax bill that just came out, and like literally the first 20 articles on Google are all negative. I don't know if you guys have ever tried to do this, right? I hate this. I hate this biased media. I'm just going to be totally honest right now. It drives me crazy that you can't even find a positive analysis, you know, of this tax bill in like the first two, three pages of Google's of, of Google searches. I, I despise that. And the reason why is because a small government is one of the founding principles of our entire nation. Our nation was built on a set of principles. One of them is small government, limited government. And that's what tax policy is really all about. I'm not going to go on forever because I know I'm going to put half of you to sleep if we go into the details of taxes. But I just want to say this. There's always another side of the story. But in our day and age, you're going to have to look to find it. Okay, You're going to have to look to find it. I would bet the vast majority of your professors on your colleges and your friends in your colleges are going to be Democrats or more sympathetic to the liberal side. I just want to say, for me, I really put a lot of effort into understanding conservative principles and philosophy. And when I was in college, I really challenged a lot of the political beliefs around me, not just political. I remember uh, someone was asking me this week about how I, you know, how I learned so much about the Bible. And one of the things I, one of the things I said to her was, you know, for seasons of my life, I studied the scriptures with no answers. Every time I felt like I would study scripture, I would just come out with so many more questions, right? And I felt like that season was really important. Why? Because I had to critically analyze everything that I had been taught. And, I, and, and it's because I spent seasons of my life saying, I don't know what the truth is, but I'm serious about finding it out, right? That I've become very opinionated as an adult, right? I would encourage you, it's okay to not know what the answer is, especially as a college student. The reality is most of you are just learning about all this kind of stuff. It's okay to be like, I don't know. My encouragement to you, though, is to investigate and to learn because these things do have importance. Your voting is important. And my prayer is that you would become a wise and learned and understanding person in our culture. All right, amen. Have you found Hebrews 11? I gotta admit, I'm a little, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, nerdy and happy about today's message because we get to, we get to slap Calvinism around a little bit, which is always lots of fun. 
Um, and that to understand why we have to do that, we have to know what the context of Hebrews 11 is. So Hebrews 11 is a very famous chapter of Scripture where the author of Hebrews is going to go through and recount all of the heroes of faith from the Old Testament. Um, but he's doing this for a reason. We have to understand the context of why he's saying this. And where chapter 11 fits into the wider scope of his argument is you have to understand the book of Hebrews was written to warn Jewish believers against forsaking Christ. Okay, so there's a group of believers in Jerusalem especially, but throughout Israel who have decided to follow Jesus. And yet what happens in church history is, you know, for those of you who know your church history, there is a great fire that breaks out in Rome. Okay, this big fire breaks out in Rome. What happens is that Christians get blamed for this fire. And under Emperor Nero, a great persecution against Christians breaks out in the ancient world. This is where all these stories of martyrdom happen in the ancient world. You hear about Christians being thrown into the Colosseum to fight lions and things like that. They were burned on crosses. All sorts of crazy stuff was happening. And in the midst of all of this persecution, the author of Hebrews is writing to the Jewish believers and saying, Do not forsake Christ now. Do not forsake Christ now. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, by the way. Okay? Many people think it was Paul. It was somebody who was obviously very influenced by Pauline theology. So some have speculated that it was Apollos or one of his other disciples. We don't know for sure. It could have been Paul. There are some verses that seem to indicate that it wasn't. But Ultimately, we don't know who it was that wrote it, but we do know that the author here is making a strong push. And coming into chapter 11, coming out of chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, in many of your guys' Bibles, is going to be have a heading that says, a call to persevere, or something like that. And what he's saying in chapter 10 is, look, You must stand firm in the faith, especially now that it's gotten difficult, right? And I think this is something that, just being honest, many Christians don't understand. Many Christians don't understand this, and let me take a couple swings at Calvinism here. For those of you who don't know what Calvinism is, it is the belief that God does all the work in your salvation, right? You don't really do anything. God does it all. You, you are dead in your sins. You have no ability to respond to him. But God changes your heart, and he's the one who saves you completely. It was nothing of your own initiative, nothing of your own contribution. That's why God gets all the credit. And because of that, you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your faith. Why? Because God did all the work to save you in the first place. Does this make sense? That's how that logically flows. So there's a doctrine in Calvinism called perseverance of the saints, meaning those who are truly saved, well, you cannot unlose your salvation. Now, the way that gets taught sometimes in churches is that we are to have an assurance of our salvation, right? That if we know that we're in the faith, that we can be confident that God is going to carry it out to completion. He's going to finish the work that he started, right? There's all these verses that we use, but basically the idea is don't worry. Even if you're struggling in different seasons of your life and whatnot, you cannot lose your salvation. Let me say once, you know, again, that's a bunch of baloney. I'm sorry that's a bunch of baloney. And I would love to do another seminar. We're going to do one, one of these days. When we go in-depth with those of you who really want to get into the nitty-gritty of Scripture, I love, this is one of these theological issues that I'm, I'm a nerd about, right? I love unpacking this particular one. But 
The understanding of assurance is a misunderstanding here, okay? We are to have an assurance not in the fact that we cannot lose our salvation, but we are to have an assurance that God keeps his promises. Does this make sense? God is faithful to keep his promises. And look, the author of Hebrews is going to say just that in chapter 10 and verse 23. It should be on the board. It's going to say, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. This is the assurance that we are to have as believers. Our assurance is that if we remain in faith, if we stay faithful to our allegiance to Jesus, that God is going to keep his promise, and on the day of judgment, we are going to be declared righteous, innocent of a guilty verdict because of our allegiance to Jesus. Am I making sense? That's the assurance we are to have. But the whole notion that we are to have some type of assurance that we can't ever lose our salvation, well then, you're basically going to have to cut the rest of Hebrews 10 out of your Bible. Because in verse 26, he's going to say this, and I, I quoted this a couple months ago. It says, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there's no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There's only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. Right? This is a very clear warning in Scripture. Do not be deceived for those of us who know the truth. And he's going to talk about this also in chapter 6 and chapters 9, this idea of once we know the truth, we've tasted, right, of the, the powers of the age to come, right? We've had this experience, this revelation of Jesus. If we abandon the faith then, then there no longer remains a, a sacrifice for our sins. It's just Jesus. He's the only one. And if we forsake that, then there is no hope. That's what he's talking about here. Now, some will say, well, maybe he was talking about unbelievers. Maybe he was talking about unbelievers. And the problem with that is if you just read a couple verses later in verse 32, he's going to say, think back on those days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten. And sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. So clearly, he's talking to believers here, right? Clearly, he's talking to believers. He's warning believers. And this is consistent with a number of other passages in Scripture that warn believers against practicing sin, against forsaking the faith, against believing heresies, major doctrines that are false because they'll lead you astray. So brothers and sisters, what's the point of this? That the context for this entire talk about faith is that we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility. What is responsibility? What does that even mean? It's really simple. It means the ability to respond. Right? Sometimes, and you know, not all Calvinists teach this, by the way. I know many of you are considering Calvinism. God bless you. 
But what it can do is it can lead to a very fatalistic understanding of Christianity. God's going to do all the work, right? I don't have to worry about these things because God's going to do it. This mentality creeps in all over the place, right? Oh, I'm going to pray for this person. If it's God's will that this person gets healed, then they will. And if it's not, then they won't. Or it's because you lack faith. No, no, I don't want to, I don't want to, except that's what it says over and over again in Scripture, right? Like every single time Jesus heals somebody, your faith has made you well, right? It's your faith that healed you. Now, I'm the first to admit my faith for healing sucks. I suck at it, okay? I'm not trying to say you have such little faith and I have so much faith. No, what I'm saying is that as a church, we tend to have terrible faith, right? Our faith is really small. Especially for things like healing, because we're raised in a culture that's hostile to the supernatural. Am I making sense? We are all raised in this mentality. It's confirmed by all of our friends. That's why it's so hard for us to believe testimonies of healing. Right? The reality is I could go to people and say, look, I've seen miracles. I've seen someone's leg grow out right in front of me. I watched it as it grew. And they're like, hmm. You're, you're probably lying, or you probably thought you saw something, right? And I'm like, no, I saw it. And that's not the only miracle I've seen, right? I've seen a number of miracles, and yet when I tell people, their natural response is skepticism. Why? Because our culture has such little faith. That's why. Our culture has such little faith. And again, why am I bringing this up? Because of this dynamic of we have a tendency in Christianity to just chalk it up to the, the fatalism of God, right? Well, God has preordained this. That's why it happens. And God has not preordained this. But I want to tell you, if you buy into that mentality and everything in Christianity, then what happens is you're responsible for nothing, right? Oh, yeah, if God's going to bring revival, then he's going to bring revival. It doesn't mean I have to fast and pray and contend, no, what? That's weird. That's for those hyper Christians. No, that's for those Christians with faith. Oh, dang. Just got real. Right? What's the point? We have a say in this. Our decisions matter. We're part of a spiritual war that's real. And if we have just this mentality, oh, well, I'm saved. I said that prayer 20 years ago. Or, hey, maybe I had that real encounter with God. And you know it's real. And, and first of all, I say, wonderful. That's awesome. We should all have testimonies in our lives of how God did amazing things with us, right? That's something that all of us should have, not just one or two or three of. We should all have dozens of those stories. Why don't we? Oh, God has not ordained it. No! Our faith is small. Am I making sense? Where is the responsibility here? We're saying, we're recognizing our weakness. I want to tell you why that's a glorious thing. Because God delights in us even when our faith is small. Some people interpret it as, no, but if my faith is small, then God's not happy with me. God's mad at me all the time. No, no, that's, you don't understand the heart of God. I delight in my children's immature faith, right? My kids, they sometimes say the dumbest things, right? But I, I understand them. I love them even in their immaturity. And God feels that way about us but if we constantly attribute to God what's our responsibility, then we get into trouble. God's not showing up in our lives, and what starts to happen, we start to blame him. Guess what you'll learn if you come to our dating seminar? There is no predestined one for you. No. 
No, there's not. There's no one. That person doesn't exist. You're like, no, my, my hope in life is ruined. No, let me tell you what does exist. What exists is the ability for you to cultivate maturity in your life and for another person to cultivate maturity in their lives. And then you can choose to marry one another. But guess what? You're going to have to make that choice every day of your marriage. Just because you start feeling feelings for somebody else, oh, maybe that's the one. No! No! No, you made a choice. You made a commitment. Now it's time to stand by your commitment. Am I making sense? If people had the right paradigm of marriage, I think a lot more would last. But I tell you what's going to happen. Some of you who have been in long-term relationships, you know what happens. One day you wake up and you realize, this person ain't as perfect as I thought they were. This person has some issues. Welcome to reality. Welcome to reality, right? That's reality, right? The power of marriage is not that you found the perfect person. The power of marriage is that you've cultivated maturity so that you have the ability to love them even though they're imperfect. And they do the same for you. Am I making sense? Well, guess what? It's not magically different with Jesus. No, but with Jesus, it's all magic. The Holy Spirit does it all, and I do nothing. That's why he gets all the glory. Can I just say, that's a load of junk, okay? That's a load of junk. Because then you have to answer the question, well, why didn't God choose everybody? Why, why? And then you get into the really hairy place of, oh, did he predestine certain people to hell and certain people to heaven? And you can't get around that one, right? There's no way to really get around that. And I want to say this. No, I think the scriptures are true. God so loved the world, he desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of him, right? So where's the problem? Why isn't every single person saved? Right? We have to take responsibility. We have to take responsibility. Why are we, why do we tell you to pray and fast? So that more people will get saved. Right? What does that mean if you choose not to pray and fast? Fewer people will get saved. Why? Why do we tell you to contend for things of the faith? Because if you do, then you will have greater degrees of breakthrough in your life with God. When we have a, a, a mentality of fatalism, then we just blame other people. We blame God. We get jealous. God, why do you, have, why do you bless those people so much, but you don't bless me? Right? All of that is a mentality that doesn't understand the responsibility that we have. Here's a true principle. Every single one of us is as close to God as we want to be. Every single one of us is as close to God as we want to be. Let me put it you another way. If you're desperate to be closer to God, he will draw near to you. That's what the Bible says. And that's what I've seen over and over and over again in the lives of many people that I've ministered to, and it's what I've seen in my own life. Right? If we're desperate for God, we will meet him because he draws near to those who draw near to him. Am I making sense? Likewise, what the author of Hebrews is talking about here is that we have an ability to fall away from the truth. Now, for some people, that's really scary. I remember when I was in college, I was singing this hymn. I, I love this hymn, right? There's the verse in this hymn. It's come thou fount, 
right? The last verse of that hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, right? Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. I remember I went through a season where I was singing that song like every day. God, don't let me fall, right? Don't let me fall because I, I knew my own problems, right? I knew my own tendencies, right? To wander from faith, to blame God for stuff that he doesn't deserve blame for. To say, forget it, God. To just not want it, to not believe all these kind of things. I understood my own heart. But here's what I want to say. To have a mentality of fear where we're, uh, we're deeply afraid and terrified that we're going to fall out of faith. Well, I want to say that's also, that's, that's not the right mentality on the other extreme, right? The healthy place is in the middle. Look, my kids, it's not like it's impossible that they get hit by a car one day. Am I making sense? As a dad, when I'm walking with my kids down the street, you know what I'm doing? I'm watching to make sure they aren't stepping into the street. I'm not going to let them just step into the street on accident. I'll run over to them. I will grab them by the neck. I will fling them back the other way. And how many of you guys know that's what God does for us? You ever experienced that? I have. The rock of humility. Crushing my pride. I've experienced that in my own life. God, that's why David says, God, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, right? Because I know that you won't let me go into a super dangerous situation. But how many of you guys know if my kid is so dumb that he or she decides to take off in the middle of the street, I can't stop him. Am I making sense? Now, there's a dynamic where that's also true with God. God lets us go astray because he respects our will. When we make a conscious decision to rebel against him, he lets us go. And that's why scripture warns us about practicing sin. When we practice sin, our hearts start to harden to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's why it warns us over and over again, do not practice sin because your heart will harden against God. You won't be able to hear his voice of correction. You won't be able to feel his love. There's a role that we have to play and there's a role that God plays. And guess what? You can be very secure in that relationship. I don't live in a constant moral terror that I'm going to fall away from faith. Why? Because I believe that God, he is helping me. I believe he's helping me, and I have a confidence, a great hope, right, that he will keep me until the end. And that's the heart that we should all have. Does that make sense? What we see here in Hebrews is that he's warning these Jewish believers who are under the type of persecution that we have nightmares about, okay? None of y'all are dealing with what they dealt with. Did you just hear what he said here? Remember back to those days you first learned about Christ, Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were, and were beaten, right? Sometimes you suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. All you owned was taken from you. You accepted it with joy. They already went through major persecution. And he's saying, remember that. You held fast then. Now, even though the persecution is greater and stronger, don't fall away now. Can we just be honest for a second? If many of us experienced the persecution of the, the first time they went through, half of us would be gone. I pray, I hope I'm not in that half. 
right? In humility, we don't know how we would stand under, under serious persecution, right? I hope that I would be able to weather serious persecution. But in humility, I can't say for sure whether I would. But brothers and sisters, he's talking to people that have much greater faith than we do, generally speaking. Am I making sense? Right? He's speaking to people who have been tested in their faith, and yet they chose to follow Jesus, and now they're undergoing an even harder test. Right? And this is the context where he comes to chapter 11. And what's he going to do now? Now he's going to recount the faith of the heroes of Israel. So we're just going to get into this just a little bit. We're just going to do the first two verses today, okay? <clears throat> that was all an intro, praise God. <clears throat> Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. Real quickly, let me comment on this. What is faith? What is faith? Faith I would say this is the ability to perceive the unseen realm. That's not the exact definition of what faith is, but I think it's most helpful for us in understanding faith. Faith is not blind, right? The notion that you're to just trust God, look, a lot of people use that in a completely wrong understanding. Oh, just trust him, right? No, no, you trust him if he's told you something. Some of you guys are trusting God for the one. Should you trust God for the one? No. Am I making sense? Right? You trust God for things that he's actually said. If he's actually said something, that's the context in which you trust God. That's why so many people have weird, weird understandings, right? Like, oh, I'm going on a mission trip. I just need to raise $10,000. But don't worry. God always provides. Well, did he say he was going to provide for you? Or you just heard somebody else say that he was going to provide for them? Am I making sense? So much of our Christianity is where we think that because God said it to somebody else, it applies to us. Can I say that's how a lot of people get disappointed in their lives? Right? The pastor tells you, oh, this is what God said to me, so you can stand on it. Except the problem is he didn't say that to you. There are things that apply to all of us, and there are things, when we're talking about specific situations, where God actually has to say it to you. I know, this is novel, right? It's not just a list of rules. God actually has to talk to you sometime, right? Like, that's real Christianity. That's what the deal is. That's why when we have real faith, it is always predicated on hearing something that God has spoken to you. In Romans 10, Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. When he speaks to us, then what happens is we have a word, we have a promise from God, and then it becomes a test of faith. Will we choose to trust what he said or will we rely on conventional wisdom or the wisdom of our friends or the wisdom of our past? Let me put it to you another way. When God is building your faith, he is going to challenge you to believe something that's difficult for you to believe in this season of your life. That's how it works. John Wimber, who I love, famously said faith is spelled R-I-S-K. 
It requires risk. This is how God tests our faith. He calls us to do things that are risky. Let me put that to you another way. If it's been a long time since you've done something risky because God told you to, it might be time to ask for more faith. Because what happens is when the Word of God is not alive within us, we lose our vision, we lose our passion, we lose our conviction, we lose everything. It just becomes a routine. right? And can I say that that is maybe the greatest danger for us, those of us who have gone to church for decades of our lives, and you've heard the Word of God through pastor so-and-so your entire life. No, you need to hear God for yourself. You need to have a faith that believes, God, I can hear you for myself, and I want to hear you. I want to hear what you're saying to me. And look, this is an art, not a science. That's what I always tell people about listening to God. We can teach you the principles. We take you through it at our Ignite conference. But you're the one who has to have a real expectation to hear from God. That's what I'm talking about. When we're talking about praying and fasting for retreat, everyone's like, I don't want to. Be honest. I was the only one who was happy about that. Fasting. Why? Because unless we have an expectation that God is going to do something, then it's hard to walk in faith. I have a hope and an expectation that God's going to move in a major way. What does that do? It gives me vision to do things like fast and pray. Right? I have a hope and expectation that God is going to bring revival in America. That's why I fast and I pray for America. That's why I fight for things that seem like it's impossible. It's never going to happen. Oh, but it has happened in our nation's past. Amen. We've had great turnarounds, right? That's why even though all that I see with my eyes says this is impossible because I've heard the Lord with my heart, I know that it's possible. Am I making sense? This is what faith is about, and this is what we're going to see in every single person in chapter 11 of Hebrews. Every single one of them heard the voice of God. That's why I hate the theology today that says that God doesn't speak outside the Bible. Give me a break. In the Bible, God speaks outside the Bible. Don't give me this God doesn't speak outside the Bible nonsense. That is some faithless garbage. And yet, practically speaking, that's the, that's the paradigm under which many Christians live today. They never expect to hear God apart from the Scriptures. And look, I love hearing God through the Scriptures. I hope you hear God every time you read the Scriptures. But if you can find God, I can't hear anything that's not the Scriptures. What I want to tell you is you're opening yourself up, number one, for deception. Because the devil is so good at quoting Scripture at you. Man, that guy will give you the most persuasive-sounding Scriptures to prove an unbiblical point. Why? Because your ability to discern truth is about your relationship. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. It's the recognition of his voice that gives us our proper discernment on whether it's God or not. Am I making sense? That's why we have to grow in our ability to discern the voice of the Lord. Guess what? There have been so many times in my life where I thought it was God, 
and it turned out not to be God. Why do I have so much wisdom in relationships? Some lessons I had to learn the hard way. I was telling Jason, I try and only, if it's a hard lesson, I only want to learn that lesson one time. That's why I wear a cup when I go play airsoft. Some of y'all are going to learn that lesson the hard way. All right, enough on that. Last verse, verse 3. By faith we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that we now see that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. Okay, I'm going to close with this. There is no controversy. There's no, well, let me put it like this. Faith and science are not at odds. I know that's what's being preached all the time on your college campuses, that if you're serious about science, then you can't be faith-filled, and if you're faith-filled, you can't be serious about science. Let me just tell you, that is a freaking lie. That is a lie. There's so many strong Christian scientists out there, but do you know that they're heavily persecuted? A lot of times they're persecuted. But I just want to say this. Science and faith are not at odds. Just real quick, there's different ways of understanding Genesis chapter 1, right? The creation account. Some understand it to be a six-day literal day creation. Six 24-hour periods of time. Now, that's the one that really struggles with science. Okay. Now, here's what I'm going to say. I am agnostic on this issue. I don't think it really matters. Okay, I don't think it matters whether it was a six-day literal, literally creation or if it was six periods of time that were longer than that. I don't think it matters, but I tend to lean towards old earth theory. I tend to think that it was probably old earth. I am not a scientist, but what I do know is that that account in Genesis, guess what? God creates light on the very first day, but when does he create the stars and the sun? The fourth day. So what light was he talking about on the first day? I don't know. (laughs) Heavenly light? Spiritual light? I don't know. It's mysterious. That's the point. Okay? It's mysterious. And guess what? Just because it says day doesn't mean that we have to interpret it literally in a 24-hour type of way. I don't think that. I think lots of portions of Scripture have different types of meanings. They use words that are symbolic, or that, especially when you're trying to convey creation, guess what? There's probably not a perfect word in English. Am I making sense? I think it's better to understand that it was like a day. I don't see a major problem with that. It is absolutely not heretical. This is a position that is embraced by many strong Christians. We went through a series last year with Tim Keller's reason to, reason, Reasons for God. What was it called? Reasons for God. right? Where he basically lays out the, the same kind of position. There's many Christian scientists, including um, Hugh Ross. Now, look, just being honest, for me, this is not an area of faith that I personally have struggled with. Okay? But for some of you, this might be a very difficult thing, right? You might really struggle with the question of evolution, with the question of creation, and how they can fit together with the biblical data. And I want to say, if that's you, good, good. That's a good thing that you're struggling with that, right? Why? Because it means that you care about knowing the truth. I don't think that's ever a bad position. I don't think that's ever a bad position. Why? Because I'm not insecure about the Bible. 
I'm not insecure about the Bible. I think that if you allow the Lord to guide you into all truth, I think it will match the biblical data. I think that's okay. I think the church has had many terrible doctrines that have been, you know, revealed, exposed in the course of time. Because guess what? We are finite beings, and sometimes we don't understand the scriptures. That's the reality, right? The reality is the theological positions of many theologians have changed over the past hundred years, right? Why? Because we find new understanding that makes better sense of the Bible. Look, I try and put it like this. People ask me sometimes, why is it that so many pastors disagree on all these little minor doctrines? And the reason is this, because we only understand like 20% of the Bible. Oh, that's not what you're supposed to say, Pastor Dennis, right? You're the Bible expert. Yeah, but the reality is we only understand like 20% of it. You know how much of the Bible I don't understand? That's all the parts that I never preach on. There's a lot in there that we don't understand, okay? And guess what? Especially when you believe that there's layers of meaning to the Bible, you understand how much we don't understand? There, I, I think that we're probably going to spend eternity learning about how amazingly true the Scriptures are. So my point is this. On minor points of doctrine, you don't get dogmatic, right? I love to punch Calvinism in the face, but I never punch Calvinists in the face. I love Calvinists. Am I making sense? We don't get dogmatic over things, but let me just leave you with a couple things here. Look, I would, I would encourage you, if you, this is an area where you struggle in your faith with, start to research. Look up Hugh Ross. I think he's a fantastic, um, he's a Christian astronomer. He was a researcher at Caltech for a long time. He points out, he points out this, in 1992, physicists discovered exotic matter in the universe that proved the Big Bang Theory. Stephen Hawking called it, quote-unquote, the discovery of the century, if not all time. George Smut, who led the team of physicists, said, what we have found is evidence of the birth of the universe, right? This is speaking of the scientific discoveries that have made the Big Bang Theory now extremely persuasive, right, in the scientific community. In fact, this started with Albert, a dude named Albert Einstein. Now, first of all, I'm not a physicist, okay? So I'm quoting other people who are, okay? Albert Einstein discovered that the universe was expanding. Now, for him, that was a big deal because in his day, the scientific understanding was that the universe was static, meaning it had always existed. Right? It had always existed as it was, but Einstein started to believe that, no, the universe was expanding. And this belief, right, that's part of his theory of relativity, this belief persuaded him that if the universe is expanding, it must have had an origin point. Right? And this belief caused him to believe that there was a God and that that God was intelligent. Dr. Arno Penzias, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering cosmic microwave background radiation, said, quote, the best data we have concerning the Big Bang are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, the Bible as a whole. In fact, how many of you guys have heard of Antony Flew? Y'all are too young. Okay, Antony Flew was maybe the most prominent atheism of the, uh, atheist of the 20th century. And for most of the 20th century, especially the latter half of the 20th century, he was very hostile against Christianity, and yet, at the end, he converted to Christianity. And this is what he said. There are two factors in particular that were decisive. 
One was my growing empathy with the insight of Einstein and other noted scientists. There had to be an intelligence behind the integrated complexity of the physical universe. The second was my own insight that the integrated complexity of life itself, which is far more complex than the physical universe, can only be explained in terms of an intelligent source. I believe that the origin of life and reproduction simply cannot be explained from a biological standpoint despite numerous efforts to do so. With every past year, the more that was discovered about the richness and inherent intelligence of life, the less it seemed likely that a chemical soup could magically generate the genetic code. The difference between life and non-life, it became apparent to me, was ontological and not chemical. The best confirmation of this radical gulf is Richard Dawkins' comical effort to argue in The God Delusion that the origin of life can be attributed by a, to a lucky chance. If that's the best argument you have, then the game is over. No, I did not hear a voice. It was the evidence itself that led me to this conclusion, okay? This argument is called the teleological argument. There's a fantastic scholar at Biola University named William Lane Craig who is an expert in the teleological argument. You can find his videos on YouTube and listen all day long for years, right, to all the evidence that this dude has accumulated on all this stuff. And it's a powerful argument. The basic idea is this. If we find sufficient evidence in the universe for design, then there must have been a designer. A lot of work has come out, especially in the past you know, 20, 30 years, on DNA and how DNA is not just like code, but it actually is code, that it follows all the rules of code, that DNA in and of itself shows, proves that there must be a designer who, does, who uses DNA as code in his creations. There's a lot of stuff online about all of this. And yet what we find is that there are many people in the scientific community that are absolutely hostile to intelligent design. Right? It's so hostile in some places. In fact, Dr. Guillermo Gonzalez was blacklisted from tenure at Iowa State University because of his support for intelligent design, even though he was the most productive astronomer in his department, judged by the impact factor of his publications. Brothers and sisters, if you're trying to be a strong Christian on your campus, you will face persecution. But I want to tell you, it's not because the evidence or the data is against you. This is important. Because you're going to hear that opinion all the time, and it's not the truth. The truth is that there is an intellectual intimidation on our college campuses that, congratulations, you have been called to overthrow. So if you come under that intimidation, that's a problem. It's a problem if you're too intimidated by the scientific community to even investigate these things. No, you are to investigate them and you are to declare that God is God, that the creator is real, right? Because there's great hope when we do this, right? Look, for most people, the evidence of creation is not going to be enough to persuade them that God is real. Why? Because we are limited beings, we don't have the ability to compute all the data and evidence that's out there and say beyond a doubt whether God exists or he doesn't exist. But it should absolutely not stand in the way of our faith. I want to say this is something that you have been struggling with personally. I want to say this. It's time for God to set your mind free in this area. This is what he says. The truth makes us free. And here is another truth. We need experts in this area. We need Christian experts. Not all of you are supposed to be pastors. Not all of you. Some of you, come on. 
Okay, but some of you are supposed to be experts in cosmology, right? Some of you are supposed to be experts in astronomy. Some of you are supposed to be experts in biology. And what I encourage you to do is study and be excellent and be the best in the field. Because then you have a voice of authority. Some of you, this is a calling in your life. And you need to start prioritizing your studies. It's important. None of you should be failing your studies. No failing studies. Okay? Why? Because we're called to be excellent in all that we do. Now, if Jesus says, I want you to do X instead of study for this test, then you obey him. Okay? We always obey the voice, even when it seems to contradict wisdom. Okay? But if you're always hearing God telling you to do weird things all the time, and other people are like, dude, I don't think that's God. You're like, no, I know it's God. It might be not be God. Am I making sense? Okay? This is what pastors are for. We can help you discern these things. Worship team, come on up. Amen. Let's stand up here. Our prayer for this entire series is going to be, God, increase my faith. Increase my faith. Faith is one of the greatest things in the universe. With faith, we disarm, we strike down every fiery dart of the enemy. Let me put it to you another way. If you're tired of getting beat up in your spiritual life, it's time to pray for more faith, right? If you're tired of not seeing God show up in your life, it's time to pray for more faith. If you're tired of running into things that discourage you, it's time to pray for more faith. If you feel intimidated on your college campus, it's time to pray for more faith. We need some Pauls walking around here. We need some people who are walking revival, even if it's a little mini revival. That's fine. But when when our environment is affecting us more than we're affecting our environment, there's something wrong. Am I making sense? We're the light of the world, okay? They're not the light of the world infecting us. We're supposed to infect them. But the only way we can affect them for the kingdom is to have the Word of God burning alive inside of us, right? It's to be a beacon of direction, of calling in our lives. It's to be the spiritual power in our lives that says, I know what I'm supposed to do. Hear me. Some of you guys are so, you don't know what you're supposed to major in. You don't know what you're gifted in. You don't know what you're called to do in your life. Let me tell you, that's okay, but it's time to pray for more faith. It's time to get a word from the Lord where God directs you in your life and your life starts to take on the power and purpose that you were called to have. This is what we're praying for in the season. This is what I'm asking that God would do at our retreat, that he would grip our hearts with his calling in a fresh way. The word of God would become alive inside of us and that we learn how to cultivate it. That we wouldn't be a people who just hears what he says And then we don't put it into practice and the fire of God goes out in our life. Know that we'd be a people who knows how to cultivate His Word so that when it goes in, we steward it well and it grows and grows and grows throughout our whole lives. Amen? Amen. Let's bring our hearts to the Lord right now. I just want us just to start to ask Him for more faith right now. Start to cry and say, God, fill us with greater faith. 
Don't let the fire in my life go out. It's time, God, for more. It's time to go to a new level of faith and start to ask him right now. Just lift up your voices. Come on.